Okay, well, why we believe the Bible. Why we believe the Bible. Let me start with this. Why would someone believe the Bible? Why not? Why, why would millions of people throughout the centuries choose to follow this book? Why would they make their life decisions based on this book? And why would people put their faith in a book? Well, the answer is that the Bible is more than a book. And for the next several weeks, we're going to dig into the many reasons that we can fully trust that this is the very Word of God. The very Word of God. There are lots of great scholars and apologists out there that are teaching and writing on this. I mean, there's just so many great people talking about it. So my goal throughout this series is going to be to compile some of that, uh, look at the Word of God itself, and then put into lessons some things that will give us some clarity that will strengthen our faith, and that will help us when we're talking with others, and just know for our own heart and mind uh, what the Bible truly is. Now, there was a guy a couple years ago, after asking what I did for a living, and I told him I was a pastor. He said to me this. He said, I wish I, wish I could write a book and everybody would just follow what I said. <laughs> and uh, I had started to get to know him a little bit before that or kind of get the feel of what kind of a person he was. And he definitely had an attitude and he was trying to get on my nerves. There's no doubt about that. But in all fairness, he wasn't getting on my nerves because I sized him up pretty quick too. And I pretty much expected something like that to come out of his mouth. But I basically just gave him a quick answer that, uh, that he, what, what he would have to do if he were going to actually write something like the Bible. An impossible feat for a person like him or for any human being. <laughs> so here's the question. Is there a smart enough person out there who could come up with a book like the Bible? Who could actually write this thing and do it uh, as it is today? Before you can answer that question, actually, you need to have a good understanding of what the Bible actually is. So what is the Bible? The Bible is a collection of books with a united message. Sorry, it's a little covered up there, but the Bible is a collection of books with one united message. This is a helpful graphic here that I put up. This is the bookshelf of the Bible, if you will. You've probably seen it before. It divides the Bible into these different books helps us see what it really is. The Bible is more than just one book. It's a collection of books having books about history, poetry, prophecy, biography, some more history books in the New Testament, uh, letters or epistles, and then prophecy there in the book of Revelation at the very end. It's divided into Old and New Testament. And every one of those uh, books is a different book that was written by a person and it's so diverse, but it's so unified. And that's the thing we're going to look at, the first, uh, at here at the beginning is the unity of the Bible. And the, the diversity of writings with a unified message is incredibly unique among religious books. In fact, this idea here of what it's doing is sets the Bible in a class all of its own, separates it from every other religious book. Take, for example, the Quran. All right, the Quran. It was written by Muhammad. 
And the Muslims believe it's God's final revelation to man. They claim that over a period of 23 years, Allah dispatched the angel Gabriel to Muhammad to, uh, to reveal these deep spiritual truths. The thing is, much of it is actually just plagiarized from the Bible. In fact, Pastor Mike says the whole thing is a plagiarization. But, but even, here's the interesting thing, even with only one author, there's only one person who wrote it, that is Muhammad. Even with that, there's, an, there's just an amazing lack of unity in it. It's just all over the place. It's just random. Uh, here's what Ken Woodward said about uh, the Quran. He said, as sacred texts, however, the Bible and the Quran could not be more different. To read the Quran is like entering a stream. At almost any point, one might come upon a command of God, a burst of prayer, a theological pronouncement, the story of an earlier prophet, or a description of final judgment. None of its 114 surahs or chapters focuses on a single theme. It's just all over the place. The, another example, the Book of Mormon, uh, written by Joseph Smith. According to Joseph Smith, an angel named Moroni appeared to him in 1823 near his home in New York. The angel supposedly showed him these golden plates that were uh, containing new information about Jesus Christ. Four years later, the angel gave Joseph the, the golden plates, supposedly, to translate into English. Uh, those golden plates became the Book of Mormon. But here's the thing. The golden plates have... Uh, conveniently been returned to the angel so nobody can verify these golden plates so nobody's ever seen these golden plates and uh, and so nobody can verify these things and in spite of the claims of Joseph Smith the Book of Mormon actually does not contain historically ver verifiable facts it just doesn't and it certainly doesn't contain fulfilled prophecies so now let's consider how different the Bible is from the Quran, how different the Bible is from the Book of Mormon and every other religious book in some of the, uh, the Eastern religions as well. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors. Moses wrote the first book of the Bible, Genesis. He wrote all five of the first books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He wrote those about 1440 B.C., John wrote the last book around 100 A.D. So that's a span there of 1,500 years from Moses to the Apostle John. They didn't know each other. And yet what they written was surprisingly uh, unified. The Bible was written in several different countries on three different continents. The Bible was written primarily in two different languages, Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. There's some Aramaic in there in some of the Old Testament books. But most of these authors didn't know each other, and they certainly could not have conspired together to write a religious book. These were a diverse group of writers. Think about this. Moses, a political leader. David was a shepherd. Solomon was a monarch. Daniel was a prime minister. Amos was a herdsman. Luke was a doctor. Paul was a rabbi. Peter was a fisherman. They came from all walks of life. So you have people from different continents, from different walks of life, in different languages, and in different time periods, most of them never even speaking to each other. And yet there is perfect unity in the, in the Bible. Uh, Adrian Rogers says, 
Every page is drips in blood. <laughs> and it's the blood of Jesus on every page of the Bible. Here's what one scholar said about this. Author Pink said, Yet despite these varying circumstances, conditions, and workmen, the Bible is one book. Behind its many parts, there is an unmistakable organic unity. It contains one system of doctrine, one code of ethics, one plan of salvation. Think about that. And one rule of faith. Now, if you just stop and think about this for a minute and really consider this. This is absolutely a miraculous feat. Amen. Just try to get that many people together to agree on anything. On anything, let alone a rule of faith or a religion. And they say if you, if you get two theologians together to discuss a topic, you'll have three different opinions. <laughs> and the Bible is a miracle. It is an absolute miracle that all of them could be f- so focused on this one thing. The Bible lastly touches, and hu- touches on hundreds of topics, but has one united message. Let me develop that a little bit more. Let, let me give you some examples of the unity. Moses, in Genesis, he wrote about the need for a redeemer. At the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, you see sin and already seeing a need and a promise of a redeemer. The Old Testament then is filled with examples in the lives of people of what a redeemer is going to be like. And then you have the prophets come along and tell us, give us detailed information about what this Redeemer uh, would be like. Then in the book, at the very end, you have, or the Gospels come along and proclaim the Redeemer is here. And then at the very end, you have John write the book of Revelation that tells us what the Redeemer is going to do as he finishes and completes the task that was started all the way back in Genesis. And this whole thing is so perfect. There are unity and symbolisms throughout the Bible, all the way from the beginning to the end. For example, fire represents judgment in the Old Testament and New Testament. Water and oil represent the Holy Spirit throughout the entire Bible. Blood is the agent of redemption throughout the entire Bible. And it's not that these guys conspired together. There was one person behind all of this. I like what Erwin Lutzer says. Listen to this. Imagine various pieces. This is a great illustration. Imagine various pieces of a cathedral arriving from different countries and cities, converging on a central location. In fact, imagine that an investigation proves that 40 different sculptors made contributions over a period of many centuries. Yet the pieces fit together to form a simple, magnificent structure. Would this not be proof that behind the project was a single mind? One designer who used his workmen to sculpt a well-conceived plan. The Bible is that cathedral, assembled by one super-intelligent architect. See, the unity of the Bible is one of the most powerful evidences for the fact that the Bible is a miraculous book. It's not just another book. And this isn't even the most powerful evidence, in my opinion, that the Bible is the Word of God. There's others, and I'll be sharing those more in the weeks to come. But we're basically now going to be studying the doctrine of the Bible, or bibliology. Today we're going to start with looking at what we believe concerning the Scriptures, and what is the purpose of the Bible ultimately. That is, to reveal God's truth. In general, it's to to reveal God's truth to mankind. You could boil it all down, what is God 
trying to do is, in the simplest statement we could come up with, would probably be to reveal God's truth to mankind. Now, what are the different ways that God reveals himself or his truth to mankind? If you're kind of looking where, who is this God? Well, there are two categories of how God reveals himself to people. There's general revelation and then special revelation. Uh, number one, general revelation. It's general because in this, it is universal. God reveals himself universally to every man who's ever lived and ever will live in these ways. And the first way is in nature. See, the beauty, the order, the complexity and intricacy reveal to us that there is a powerful and wise God. The Bible itself actually speaks to natural revelation. And let me give that to you in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. Look what it says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky he's talking about. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork day unto day. Uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Their words to the end of the world. The psalmist here presents everything that is happening in the sky, every single night and every single day, everything that we see happening, uh, the sun rising and and the moon being up at night and the stars and everything that we see, that is a, like a daily speech, a daily lesson to the entire world saying that God is doing this. All the intricacies of it. All the perfect order. Then in the New Testament, Paul writes, gives the very same argument. For the wrath of God, he says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. God has showed him, uh, showed man himself. He has revealed himself to people. How? For the invisible things of him, of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhood, Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The point is, we understand invisible things by looking at the visible things. We can understand that there is a God by looking at the things that are around us. We look at nature. We look at the things that are made. Paul here, what he's doing is, he's making the intelligent design argument that we hear often, or the teleological argument, as uh, the real smart people call it. Teleos means design. It's the, it's the design argument. Apologists and scholars use it all the time. It just means that des- design demands a designer. A car demands a car builder. A house demands that there was a house builder. A painting demands that there was an artist. <laughs> Creation demands that there is a creator. We know that there is a creator because we see the creation. That's what Paul is saying. You know it. You know it. You're born knowing it. You look up in the sky and you are without excuse if you say that there is no God. You're without excuse because you can look and you see the complexity. How else can you explain? How else really can you explain all of this? 
This is the most fundamental thing, and we use it all the time. Let me, let me give you an example. I like what Ray Comfort uh, does. He tells a story. One, he said, one day I went into the backyard. He has his little office, he said, in the back part of his house. He said, so I went out through my backyard and noticed that it was the fall time and the leaves were falling on the ground. He said, so what I decided to do was take a few leaves and line them up in a line on the ground. He said, I knew my wife would be coming very shortly. She was going to be coming out and bringing me something. So I just went in to my office and started studying. And pretty soon my wife came in and I knew she was going to ask the question. Why did you do that? Why did you put those leaves in a line out there? Now he says, now how did she assume that those leaves didn't fall in an exact line? That was a huge assumption on her part. She assumed that some great intelligence <laughs> was, was there behind all that order. She assumed, and then she went even further than that. She assumed that her husband did it. And not just some random person came in and did that. She went all the way to the very fact that it was him. She used all her God-given reasoning, this natural reasoning that we all have and all use every single day. Logic, reason, and she made this informed decision about truth. And guess what? She was right. He had done that. And so she took all the information that she knew to be true, or she at least assumed to be true, based on good information, and made his decision about truth. And that's how any of us reach any kind of truth. An intelligent designer is the only rational explanation for all that we see around us. How else? Do you explain the universe's complex design? The evolutionists would have us believe this. No one times nothing equals everything. That's what they want us to believe. No one times nothing equals everything. I cannot believe that. And they pressure young people into going against every ounce of common sense to buy into a theory that, that this amazing complexity came from randomness and nothing. And it is hurting people. The impeccable, think about this, like things like this, the impeccable order every night, every day, you know, the sun's going to be there. The impeccable order and unfathomable, unfathomable vastness of the universe. It's perfect. It's timed. And it all happens uh, just as we predict it. The earth having the hundreds of conditions uniquely suited for human life. If one thing was off, we would not be able to exist. The size of the earth that supports the correct mixture of oxygen and nitrogen. If the size of the earth were different, we would not be able to survive. Water's unique properties that support life and growth. Water. Gravity. If the gravitational pull was off in the slightest bit, we would not be able to exist here. Oxygen and carbon dioxide. If the percentage of oxygen were higher, fires would ignite spontaneously across the planet. If it were lower, we would suffocate. If carbon dioxide were higher, it would, it would create a greenhouse effect, which would incinerate our planet. If it were lower, it would disrupt the photosynthesis process, making life impossible. The human cell, or the cell of, at all, the, the cell to exist needs all of its parts at the beginning. It, you, if you had parts evolving over time, there would be no cell. You have to have so many parts at the same moment to actually make the cell work. There's a whole book written about that and how that just totally uh, causes so many problems for the evolutionist. 
Human bodies is, are an incredibly complex machine. Just the eye alone. Just the eye alone. I, I Sorry to point you out, but I just noticed Danielle came and I, we had a conversation a little bit ago. Hi, Danielle. She's new. We, yeah, sorry to make... <laughs> she's doing some great work and she's uh, at school and we were talking. She, she wants to find a cure for cancer and she's... Uh, uh, tell me what you're doing. Right, pharmaceutical chemistry major. I don't even know what that means. So, <laughs> but, but she has she would she breaks down those little uh, everything that she can to try to find the cure for cancer. I, you know, we've been working for ages trying to find the cure for cancer, and we can't we can't do it. We have the smartest minds, the billions of dollars trying to trying to cure. It. And so far, it's too complex. It's too complex, and that's just one thing. The complexity of this universe is. Just unbelievable. The evolutionists want us to ignore the obvious explanation that there is an intelligent being that created all things for this view that says all these things came at random. As someone has said, to believe all of this took place by chance is like putting all the parts of a 747, dismantle the entire airplane, put it in a wind tunnel, and expect that wind to just eventually someday bring all the parts back together so that 747 can fly. It's absolutely asinine. Then then I was just going to say, then you still have the question, where did the parts come from? You still have to deal with that. Or the one I really love, give a hundred monkeys a computer and see how long it takes them to type one of Shakespeare's plays. How long would it take 100 monkeys to type perfectly a William Shakespeare play? That's what they're asking us to believe. It's foolishness. All of this design clearly speaks to a designer. It reveals that there is a God. And here's what, here's what we can agree to. And I'll, we'll talk after. I just got to get through with this. I'm sorry, my brother. Um, here's what we can agree to. We may not be able to prove that there is a God by showing him to you. But we can provide evidence that conclusively reveals his existence. And, and here's what's really going on. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, it's not that man is unable to believe in a God. It's that he, will, he chooses not to believe. He is willingly ignorant of these truths. He knows People know in their heart. God has revealed himself through nature. Jimmy Williams, who's a founder of a ministry, he's he loved, he fond of telling the story about a man who went to a psychiatrist and he was convinced that he was dead. This guy was convinced, I'm dead. The psychiatrist was unsuccessful at trying to talk him out of this illusion. Finally, he said, here, listen, do dead men bleed? The patient said, uh, no. Dead men do not bleed. The psychiatrist then pulled out a Swiss army knife, reached over and nicked the man's finger. And amazed, the patient exclaimed, whoa, would you look at that? Dead men do bleed. (laughs) No matter how much evidence we give, no matter how much evidence the apologists give or the scholars give, some people choose not to believe. And that's just all it will be. In fact, the atheist, uh, but listen, I want to think about this here. I want us to think about this. Just as we can't prove 
that there is a God. The atheist cannot prove there isn't a God. In fact, the atheist has a much more difficult task. Consider this. The legal scholar and philosopher Mortimer Adler, here's what he said. Listen closely. While it is possible to prove an affirmative existential proposition, it is impossible to prove a negative existential proposition. For example, someone might claim that a red eagle exists, and someone else might claim that a red eagle does not exist. The first person only needs to find one red eagle to prove his claim. However, the second person must scour every corner of the vast universe, an impossible feat, to ensure that he has not missed a red eagle somewhere. So we don't, we don't have the, the harder burden here. The atheist does. It's very clear that there is a God. All evidence points to it. Just as Ray Comfort's wife walked by and saw that and concluded, we can conclude the same thing. I, we do it again all the time. I, I walk home. I mentioned my wife's cooking last week. I walk home and I smell the cooking. Imagine I'm smelling it outside as I'm walking up to the, and I have, as I'm walking up to the house. And I conclude in my mind, my wife is cooking a great dinner. But I haven't seen her. I, I'm going to walk in and I guess it could be perhaps that somebody broke into my house, <laughs> took, took my family all away, and now is making dinner in my kitchen. And it's very, it is possible. I cannot prove by standing outside that it is my wife making dinner. But every, every evidence, every established pattern that we've ever had, everything would tell me that the truth is it is my wife in there. So I can reasonably conclude that this is the truth. And then I can go and verify it even. Now, we don't have to see God to know he exists. We don't have to scour every corner of the globe before we can believe that there is a God. We can make an honest and informed decision based on the powerful evidence that's been revealed to us And one of them is nature. Nature itself reveals that there is a God. And it is a powerful evidence, clearly on the side of of an intelligent creator. But there's also one other universal revelation that God gives, or general revelation, that is conscience. Every person, every man has an inner sense of right and wrong. It's morality. And this is a proof that there is a God. Here's morality and the existence of God. Here is how it could be summarized. Objective, moral, absolutes do not exist if God does not exist. Number two, objective moral values exist. Therefore, God exists. (laughs) That's an easy way to state what we're talking about here. In other words, if there is such thing as a right and wrong, then there is someone who put that in us. Because if there is a moral law, then there has to be a moral law giver. Why does everyone automatically know that raping a child is wrong? I don't care where you are on the globe, you know that. Or murder. Why do we feel guilty when we've done something wrong? Why do, why do we condemn what Adolf Hitler did? Why is it wrong? Because there is an absolute morality. There is a moral law in this universe that we know. And because there's a moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. If there is no absolute judge, then 
And who will declare what's right and wrong? Every person will get to decide for themselves. And then we'll just have like we have in the Bible, in the book of Judges. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And that is a disaster. Could you imagine if we actually lived out these things that they're, they're pushing down our throats? I mean, really. The conscience that we all have been given from, from birth can't just be a natural outworking of evolution. Because in that case, our instinct would be the survival of the fittest. And then murder would be totally accepted. I mean, we would, killing would be, would be part of the whole deal. And if survival of the fittest is our natural instinct, then why do people help other people? Why would you stop on the side of the road? Why would a person stop on the side of the road to help another person uh, and put your, basically your own life in danger to help another person if, if our natural instinct is survival of the fittest? Or why would you even feel bad if other people die? A big one to me that I just, that is so cannot be uh, drummed up and thought up by evolution or created by evolution, if you will, and that is the love. Love. There is no material thing. There's no physiological explanation for love. Where did that come from? Uh, I used this with an atheist one time. As he was talking about, you know, how come God doesn't do this and help these people and these kids and stuff? And I, I said, I'm going to stop you right there, man. Why do you care? <laughs> Why do you even care? If, it's, if, if there is no God, if none of this matters, why do you care about what some little kid is going through on the other side of the world? He, and he had no answer. No, our sense of right and wrong came from a moral being who created this world and made us in his own image. That's why we're moral people. Okay, so nature and conscience tell me that there is a God. But now that leads to millions of questions about who this God is. Who is this God? And life on this earth. So that is general revelation. But general revelation is not enough to know who, the God, who this God is. It's not enough to know who, his name. It's not enough to know his attributes. It's not enough to know his plan for the earth. It's not enough to know what he did for us. And that's why God speaks to mankind and doesn't leave us alone. He gives us another kind of revelation, and that is special revelation, we call it. Special revelation, we could say specific revelation. God is going to get specific about who he is and what he desires. And here are the two primary means of special revelation. The first one is Jesus himself. Jesus came to earth to, to reveal who God is. One of his purposes. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God, who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in time past... Unto the fathers by the prophets. So in the past, God revealed himself, who he was, to prophets. But hath in these days, last days, spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So the Son of God, Jesus, is the means by which we hear God speak. But Jesus doesn't just show us who the Father is. He, he doesn't just reveal God. More importantly, He makes a way for us to have a relationship with the Father. And that's the point of the whole Bible, verse 3, who being in the brightness of His glory and the expressed image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, 
sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He's talking about this purging of sins, which was the ultimate goal and the purpose for Jesus coming. So he gives every person the opportunity to be rightly related to God by himself purging our sins. People want God to come to earth. They say, come on, how come God doesn't come to earth and speak to me? And we say he has. I've had people actually ask me, why doesn't God reveal himself so I can believe him? And I say, he has. He has revealed himself. He has revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in, in your conscience. He's revealed himself in Jesus. God himself came to, to earth. And the, the other mode of special revelation, here's the other way he's revealed himself, and that is the Bible. That is... When we talk about the Bible, ultimately what we're saying is it is God's special revelation. It is God's way of revealing himself. Without the Bible, we might believe that there is a God, but we would not know who he was, what he expected of us, or how to get to know him. The Bible is what uncovers the mystery. It opens the box for us. It puts all the pieces of the puzzle together for us. The Bible, it tells us what God wants us to know. It tells us who this God is, what he has done for mankind, how we can be saved from judgment, how to have a relationship with God, what our purpose is, what we're we're supposed to believe and what we're not supposed to believe, what God is pleased with, how to have an abundant life. The Bible speaks to all those things and more. The Bible is the revelation of what we need to know about God and God's truth. There is no book like it in the world and its claims are very, very, very bold. But that's what you would expect from the truth. Honest and bold talk, isn't it? If it's something is the truth, it's just going to put it out there. This week I was reading in my morning devotions, Matthew chapter 7. I want to share this with you before we leave. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is ending the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus, and it's a world-changing sermon. And at the end of his sermon, he gives this word picture. Uh, And this word picture has always been proven true. Jesus, this carpenter from a small town, gathers this huge crowd on this mountain. And he tells them that if you people, all you people sitting here, listen to all I've just said. If you'll accept those words that I've just given to you. And if you'll obey them. If you'll obey them and follow them. Your life will be like a rock, built on a rock. And the storms will come, but your house will stand. And if you don't listen to me and you disobey my words, then your house will be like it's built on sand and the storms will come and it will blow your house down. And here was the impression. I was noticing this as I was reading. Here was the impression people had after that whole sermon and after Jesus said those very words. This is a, this is a carpenter saying, you follow my words, and I promise you, it'll go well for you. And here's here's what it says. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, or his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. (laughs) Jesus spoke with authority, unlike the scribes, unlike the Pharisees, What was the difference? The difference that people could notice is that Jesus had the truth. 
Jesus spoke with the authority that comes from heaven. And people, and those people that were there, just had never heard anything like it before. They'd never heard anybody speak with the authority of heaven. It's a totally different sound when you hear somebody speak with the authority of heaven and you hear somebody just speak facts that they think are true. It's a totally different feeling that you get. And this is how the Bible still speaks today. It's a voice that cuts through everything that we hear on a daily basis. The news, uh, the writings, the books that are coming out, nobody talks like the Bible. Nothing speaks like the Bible. There is a, you're astonished at its teaching. It's, it's, it's truth and it speaks with authority. It's so authoritative. And it has the ring of truth to it. And this is why there's a strong attack against it, of course. This is why nobody wants to believe it. And we want to push that aside because it has implications for my life. The Bible is the very voice of God revealing himself to us little old humans. And that's what we're going to dig into over the next few weeks. And, and how and why this book truly and how it came to us. Uh, the funnel that God used to bring it right here. We're going to dig into that more, but now let's just thank the Lord that he loves us enough to not leave us alone without his revelation, not abandon us here without his word.